Okay, guys. Uh, good evening, everybody. I'm excited to share with you guys. Tonight, we're going to have to kind of get into it because we've got three chapters in 30 minutes. So we're going to start. So if you guys could turn in your Bibles uh, to Habakkuk, and I'll pray as we're getting there. It's in the Minor Prophets. So kind of almost in the middle of your Bible. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for tonight. God, I thank you for your word, Lord, that speaks to us. It's so powerful. It's living. It's, it's active. God, it shapes us. It convicts us. It, it teaches us. And so we pray tonight, Lord, that your Holy Spirit uh, would be here, Lord, because your Holy Spirit's the great teacher. And so we pray, Lord, this wouldn't just be my opinions, but it would be your words bringing edification to the body. So may we uh, listen and be attentive tonight, and then may we receive it in our hearts, and may it bear fruit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to start with a quick outline so we get a general idea of what this book is about. I, okay, funny story real quick. I don't have time for many funny stories. But this book, okay, so I have this little Bible program software. And it, if you hit the word, it tells you how to pronounce it. And this is the first word. This is, it's not even, it's a word. It's a name. The first name where there's two pronunciations. So I might say both of them, Habakkuk or Habakkuk. I don't know. You'll get it. They're both right, but I don't know. I, my brain flip-flops back and forth. So whatever, uh, we're going to go through it. So here's a little bit of the outline. It's a three-chapter book, so pretty short. Um, and it's a cool journey that we get to see this prophet uh, kind of go through, embark on. And so in the first chapter, in verses 1 through 4, we see Habakkuk. He, he asks God why he would tolerate the sin in Judah. In verses 5 through 11 of chapter 1, God answers that he's going to judge their sin. In 12 through 17, Habakkuk asks why God uses the wicked to punish Judah. Let's uh, talk about chapter 2 real quick. In verse 1, we see Habakkuk waits patiently for the Lord's response. For the rest of the chapter, the next uh, 19 or so verses, God answers Habakkuk. And then in chapter 3, we see that Habakkuk praises God's person. He praises God's power. He praises God's purpose. Uh, we see that Habakkuk decides to wait patiently again. He understands that trials will come, but that we should have joy in the face of these trials, and that the Lord will give us strength to face the trials that we go through. So that's a quite a, kind of quick synopsis of this book. Um, it's kind of cool to, to think about this. Uh, Habakkuk must have been um, pretty creative, maybe uh, pretty artistic. It's, it's written in the form of a poem, which I think is interesting. And the last stanza, the last little bit of chapter 3 it's a hymn of praise. It's a song. It's set to music, and he instructs the, the, the chief musician uh, to sing to it. So uh, Habakkuk was a pretty artistic guy, but we see it through the poetry and the song. So think about that. We don't kind of pick up on that, but that's what's happening here in, in the text. So here's an even simpler outline of, um, of the book. Ready? Three points, three words. First, problem, chapter one. We have a problem. The second one, we have a promise. And the third one, we have praise. So problem promise, praise. So let's get some background before we get into it. Uh, I love the Minor Prophets. They're so cool because a lot of them are so similar, but yet they're unique and different, and the points where they're unique and different are so special. And so when you're studying them, though, there's 12 of them. It's kind of hard to differentiate where we're at. So I'm going to try to give us some background real quick so we understand a little bit. So Habakkuk was a prophet to the people of Judah. So remember, Judah's the southern kingdom, right around 600-ish B.C., right before Judah falls to a Babylonian invasion. Uh, Habakkuk, earlier in his life, was probably, most commentators say, he, he was alive for the great revival under King Josiah. 
Josiah became king. Imagine this when he was eight years old. Think about what you're doing when you were eight. Josiah was king when he was eight. That's pretty astounding, right? And he became king after a great spiritual decline. And the Bible says, this is pretty cool, that he began to seek the God of David when he was about 16 years old. You can read about that in 2 Chronicles 34. That's a beautiful chapter. And then when Josiah was 20, he began destroying the pagan shrines that were in the country, the Asherah poles. They were kind of like these kind of like totem poles that they resurrected to, their, uh, to the pagan gods. He started getting rid of these carved idols, these altars of Baal. He had them torn down, ripped down from the high places. And so uh, Josiah took all of these detestable things. He smashed them. It, it's actually interesting. The Bible describes it uh, becoming like he had it like pulverized. And he would scatter the ashes um, of these things or the remains of these things on the graves of the people who worship these false idols. Pretty, pretty astounding, right? He even, listen to this, he took the dead bodies of the pagan priests, dug them up, and then burned them on the altars of these false gods to, to desecrate them, to make them unclean and unholy, right? So Josiah was serious about the repentance in the land. Right? And so he refused to let his people worship these false gods. And so he didn't compromise. He didn't say, okay, well, we're going to leave those up, but we're going to do our thing over here. No, he got rid of them. Right? Because he knew that compromise kills our spiritual life. Right? When he was 26, so six years later, he ordered the temple to be worked on again. Think about this. It wasn't maintained for all these, all these years, right? At least during while he was king, right? Because he started doing it. And so for at least 26 years and probably a lot longer, the temple wasn't maintained. Think about that. And so during this cleansing of the temple, some of the workers uncovered the book of the law. How astounding was that? The whole country of Israel, really, of Judah, really forgot the first five books, the covenant between them and God. Right? And so it hadn't been read in so long that, yeah, the people almost forgot that it existed. And so Josiah, he said, we're going to have the people gather around the temple, and he had it read to all of them. And almost in a day, there was a great revival among God's people, just from the first five books of the Bible, being read out loud. It says that there was uh, weeping and crying and repentance in the streets. What a beautiful picture. And so Habakkuk sees all this great revival, right? And then the country, after Josiah, has been slipping ever since. I think an aspect of why Habakkuk was so grieved over the nation state was not because he was mourning, you know, where he knows that they should be spiritually, but that they're capable of being there. Does that make sense? He's seen it. He's seen uh, the glory of a repentant nation before God, right? When they're, when they're on their knees, when they're uh, in tears, repenting of their own sins. So he's seen this. So think about how frustrating this would have been for him. Habakkuk probably prophesied uh, during the reign of Jehoiakim, who completely undid the work that Josiah had done. Even, if you remember from Jeremiah, he burned the scroll, right? And so where we see in Josiah's reign a love for the word of God, a, it's the central figure um, of, that, of that nation, now we see a great disdain or a hatred for God's word, even to the point of burning the scroll, Right? And so that's some of the background of what's happening. So Habakkuk sees this great, you know, this great nation uh, repentant before God, and he's seen them in the spiritual decline ever since, to the point where the king had the word of God burned, right? Pretty sad stuff. Okay, so I don't know if I, I like reading it, but we probably won't have time to read. I'll try to read as much as I can. <laughs> okay, so the, the book starts off here. Uh, I'm going to read it, I, just the first few words. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. Pretty interesting. 
The book starts out saying that Habakkuk here has a burden. He has a weight that he's carrying. I think about, when I think about that, I, I think of a soldier, right, who's carrying supplies on their back. Every moment of life is affected by this burden for Habakkuk, right? And I'm sure some of us feel this way. Maybe a life experience, a doubt, a question that we might have affects our choices, our lifestyles, our emotions, because we're carrying this weight, this burden, right? And Habakkuk knew what this was like. He had questions. He had the task, think about this, of proclaiming judgment on a whole nation, right? I always think about people who have a tough job in HR <laughs> who have to fire someone, right? That's a, that's I wouldn't want to do that. Imagine having to proclaim judgment against the whole nation, right? <laughs> That's pretty brutal, right? And so he's got this burden on him. Here in uh, verses 2 through 4, uh, we notice that the, uh, the honesty that Habakkuk uh, exhibits in his conversation before God. So I'll read it real quick. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry, and will you not hear? Even cry out to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. So I just noticed the, the brutal honesty I think Habakkuk has before the Lord. I think because he knows that God can handle his big questions, right? God's big. God's big enough to handle our big questions. And so here's the things that he's honest about. He goes, God, how long do I have to pray about this? Have we ever thought that, right? God, do you hear me? I know I've thought that before. God, I'm tired of alerting you to wisdom. Why do I have, or why do I have to see so much sin, God? So he's tired of all this sin, all this drama in the nation, right? And I think this is interesting uh, there in verse 4. In another translation, so in my translation here, it says, that, therefore the law is powerless. Uh, in another translation, it says the law was paralyzed. I think that's pretty interesting stuff, right? Injustice is never Brought. So notice, Habakkuk isn't discouraged with the unbelieving world. Isn't that kind of interesting? But within the community of God's people, I think that's kind of interesting. Some pastors take this message and we try to uh, put it on our culture outside of the church walls. But this is talking about the community of God's people. So I think it has implications for us here, right? The, the lack of discipline that the people um, exhibited to sit under the word, to let the word of God shape and fill our lives. They didn't let the Bible have authority over them. Right? And it's kind of, you know, it's kind of discouraging in our day. We see inside the church, right? It seems like we can't turn on the news without seeing a scandal, right? Or there's strange doctrines creeping into the church. Or the huge amounts of Christians. Isn't this alarming that look no different than the world, right? Can we relate to this sorrow in any capacity? But think about it, right? So that other translation says that it, uh, the law was paralyzed. So think about it. Is a body that is dead capable of being paralyzed? Right? No, it's a living body that through an accident or disability is unable to move. And the church is likened to a body, as we were just reading with the youth, in Ephesians. We're living. And so are we allowing the word of God to come and do its perfect work? Are we neglecting its authority, ignoring its message to the point where we become immobile, uh, ineffective? We cannot carry out the function for which we were designed. If that's us... Right? I pray that we would reach out to our wounded healer right? to receive life, to receive newness once again, right? to get back to the purpose for which we were created, that we wouldn't be paralyzed anymore. But God accepts, I think it's pretty interesting, God accepts this type of honesty and made it to the pages of Holy Scripture. I think that's kind of interesting. Right? God is big enough to handle these challenges and questions in this honesty. And so let's, let's look at the Lord's reply here in verses 5 through 11. 
Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told to you. For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses are also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. And they deride every stronghold, for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. Then his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing power to his God. And so Habakkuk, remember in the first four verses, he wanted God to do something about Judah, right? Lord, how long are you going to look upon the sin and not do anything? And God answers here in this reply with saying, okay, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans who are mighty, they're powerful, yes, they're prideful, they're an awful nation, but they're going to be swift in overtaking this nation, right? Habakkuk was mourning over their sin, right, of Judah, but think about it. He's, he's frustrated with God. God, do you not see it? Are you not mourning over it? But think about it. Habakkuk was mourning over it. Think about it. God's been mourning over it for 500 plus years. For centuries, God has sent prophet after prophet after prophet to warn. God's been patient and long-suffering. He sees it. He's frustrated by it. And now he's working to act. God is using the Chaldeans as an instrument to remove the disease that's deep within God's people. And so here let's read from 12 through 17. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. You are, of pure, you are of purer eyes than to be, behold evil, and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously? And hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he. Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net and gather them in their dragnet. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet, because by them their share is sumptuous and their food plentiful. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? And so here we see, okay, so remember, Lord, bring judgment to Judah. God says, okay, I'm going to use the Chaldeans. And here, this is kind of funny to me, I think this sums up human nature so well, God, do something. Okay, I will. No, not that way, right? I want you to do it a different way, right? Why would God use the Chaldeans? I mean, Habakkuk's asking this question. He's, he's pleading with God not to use the Chaldeans. I don't know. Maybe he had to use some sort of wicked people who are capable of overtaking the entire country, right, and decimating it. Maybe he wanted to prune the land, and this is a way to do so. Remember Jesus in, in, in the New Testament, he says that the Father will prune some of the branches so that more would grow in his place. Maybe God wanted to show his resurrection power, and the nation would have to be wiped out almost completely in order to show his miraculous power on display. I'm not sure, but I do know this, and this is a good principle for the rest of the book. God's thoughts are higher than my thoughts. God's ways are higher than my ways. And I know that God is perfect and that he is good. And so if he has a plan, I can trust his character, even if I don't know all the reasons, right? Because God isn't calling me to be God to work everything out, to devise a plan. He's calling me to trust his planning, to rest in his character and his goodness, and I can do that, right? 
So notice what Habakkuk is doing in these verses and see if it relates to our thinking sometimes. God, I'm struggling to reconcile your character and the reality I'm seeing. Did you see that uh, earlier? He said um, back in the beginning, or excuse me, right here, uh, let's see, verse number 13, right? You're pure, uh, you are of pure eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. He's proclaiming some of God's attributes of his holiness, right? How can that mingle with the sin, right? Have we ever uh, struggled to reconcile God's character and the reality, right? What I know versus what I'm experiencing, right? God, you're holy, but how could you use these evil Chaldeans? God, you're good. Why are bad things happening to me? You ever thought that before, right? And God is here rescuing his people. That's why, I think, a, a reason why he allows evil. He wants to get his people back. Think about after um, Adam and Eve, right, after they sinned sin in the garden. Imagine if God said, enough, I'm pulling the plug. Guess what? None of us in this room would enter into eternal life. None of us in this room would enter into a deep fellowship with the God of the universe, right? So to get, e get rid of evil, God would have to get rid of us, <laughs> right? He'd have to stop after Adam and Eve. But he wants to get his people back. That's why God didn't <laughs> take out the whole world back in Habakkuk. He was thinking about you and me. Entering into the family of God, he's long-suffering because he wants us all to come into the fold, right? He's going to deal with evil, and we're going to get to that here. So let's look at chapter 2. I think uh, part of uh, tonight, a uh, big focus I'm going to have in the last 14 minutes that I have, or whatever. No, I'm going to go a little bit longer, sorry. Just a little bit. Uh, is this question, maybe we don't touch on it a lot, but it's so prevalent here, so I can't skip around it. The, the, the question of, or the, the topic of doubt, maybe questioning, complaining the way that the world is operating, right? We have tons of questions like Habakkuk, but I don't want you to be discouraged if you have a doubt. Doubt doesn't make you some terrible Christian. In, in fact, it puts you in good company. Think about Moses or Abraham, some godly people of the faith. They had doubts, right? And so you're not some lower class JV Christian, right? Because you have a doubt. Right? We have tons of questions, just like Habakkuk does. That's part of the human experience. Right? Why do people get sick? Why is there evil in the church? Why isn't there more love for God's word in the church? Why can't we shake ourselves from war, famine, disease? And we get kind of stuck in chapter 1, asking and asking and never working through to Habakkuk chapter 2 and chapter 3, where we work through our doubts and questions into a deep place of trust and faith and intimacy with God. You see, there's a worldview uh, called postmodernism that's responsible, in my generation at least, and I think uh, it's affected you guys uh, a little bit, for a lot of doubt and confusion, right? It's responsible for this term known as deconstruction. Maybe you guys have heard about that. That's kind of been a buzzword lately, deconstruction. It's a worldview, basically, that's skeptical about everything. In fact, they say that there is no truth, which is weird because they're assuming that statement right there is true. There is no truth, right? And it questions the motives behind everything. Like literally, I've never met anyone this extreme, but if you meet a real postmodernist, they would look at a history book and say it's fiction. They don't believe it, right? They don't believe facts. They question everything. There is no truth. But I know you guys, so that's hardcore, but I know you guys have heard some of these uh, statements pop up lately. Like this, there is no truth, like I just said. Or how about this one, find your truth. Or how about this one in high school when I was talking to an atheist? Well, that might be true for you, but that's not true for me, right? And that's something that's becoming more popular, especially in my generation. But think about that. 
the, the atheist, my, my friend that's an atheist who made that claim, well, that might be true for you, for that's, but that's not true for me. How could God be real and not real at the same time? Someone explain that to me, right? And it's just a way uh, to kind of avoid things and to stay in the skepticism and doubt. And eventually I talked to that one friend. It's kind of interesting. And he, uh, he said he admitted eventually maybe he's agnostic, but not because he couldn't believe in God, but that he didn't want to. He didn't want to be uh, affected, right? His lifestyle would have to be changed. He'd have to repent of certain sins that he liked indulging in. And so it wasn't so much that he couldn't believe in God or that he didn't, but that he didn't want to believe in God. He didn't want to change his lifestyle. I think it's kind of interesting. But these harmful ideas, okay, those little, um, you know, underlying currents have crept into the church and have caused some people to turn away from God instead of turning to God, which I think is interesting, which is really sad, right? Habakkuk used his questions to draw him closer to the Lord, not as an opportunity to abandon his faith at the first sign of complication. I think it's interesting, looking it up, we were looking it up on Sunday, what Habakkuk means. It means wrestler or one who embraces. Isn't that so cool? Working through an issue until we come to a place of trust and praise like Habakkuk, wrestling with these ideas. And so I think it may be helpful real quick to recognize what type of doubt we're facing so that we can address it. Right? It's kind of interesting uh, having a unique opportunity as a Bible teacher, listening to some of the kids uh, and seeing where maybe the church has fallen short or maybe Christian parenting, whatever, Christian pep- preparation for after high school. And they, uh, some of the kids said a lot of their friends, they felt so solid in their faith, but then as soon as they got into the world or got into the college, uh, some of the doubts that they had in their hearts sprung up and they didn't have a good answer and they were completely blindsided. And so I want us to think about tonight, man, what are some uh, uh, doubts that we might have in our faith, right? Because we don't want it to, you know, fester below the surface and then explode in our face all of a sudden, right? We want to deal with these issues now, right? Deal with these doubts now. So sometimes there's kind of three areas uh, that I was looking at uh, this one Christian professor. He said, sometimes this is intellectual doubt. So something maybe uh, in, in our head or maybe it's a lack of knowledge, This is kind of interesting. According to Pew Research, 53% of Americans, listen to this, view God as a cosmic force. So not a personal being, a cosmic force, an energy supply. 53% of Americans. So maybe it's a lack of information or misinformation. Maybe it's over-information. I think this is interesting. I just saw a study. The average American sees about 5,000 advertisements a day, and we consume not for work, not for school, about eight hours of screen time per day on average. So think about that. If you go to work for eight hours and then you consume content for eight hours and you're sleeping for eight hours, that takes up most of your day. There's not time to think. We're just being uh, over, you know, uh, saturated. Our brains are being oversaturated. Maybe we're losing truth because it's being drowned out in all this other noise, right? Or maybe we just have a heady question. Well, I believe in evolution, so God, you know, that explains away God. So if this is you, I, I want you guys to do me a favor tonight. Just think about it. First, write down your doubts. Get them organized on paper. And then second, pray through them one by one that God would tear down those strongholds and enable you to live a life pleasing to the Lord, right? That says that in Second Corinthians 10. And then third, seek out the matter by reading good resources or a book recommended maybe by a pastor or someone more experienced in the faith or talking through these with maybe more mature, grounded, informed Christians, right? With the same comfort that we receive, we want to comfort other people, right? The second thing, 
uh, that a lot of people struggle with is emotional doubt, right? This is spiritual doubt that's brought by pain or anger or angst or trauma. And so first, like the intellectual, uh, we recognize our doubts and we want to pray through them, acknowledging that, right, we know emotions are good, they're from God, but they can turn negative and they can take over our lives and become harmful. And so second, I think it's helpful for emotional doubt that we practice replacing negative, harmful emotions, not negative, like, you know, sometimes we think if it's like sad or lamentful, that's not bad or negative, those are good things. It might be sad, but they're good, right? They can turn us uh, toward God. But things that are, these emotions that are harmful and negative is what I mean. With, so replacing those with biblically rooted healing ones. In Romans 12, 21, it says, do not be, co- uh, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You guys know that verse. And so just a few examples, right? Despair, we can replace that with hope. Anger, we can replace that with forgiveness. Anxiety, we can replace that with prayer. Selfishness, excuse me, we can replace with self-control, and so on and so on. And then third, press into the community of believers around you, especially, I think this is so neglected today, older people in the faith, right? Who who can lead us and guide us. They have great experience, and they've walked with the Lord for a number of years, so they probably have great wisdom to share with us. Then there's this aspect, so intellectual, maybe a heady question, emotional, we're feeling something in our hearts, moral doubt. And this is where our personal habits move us farther and farther from God. I think it's interesting, in Proverbs, it doesn't say that the fool says that there is no God. It says, in Proverbs, the fool says in his heart there is no God. I think that's kind of interesting. We can live in a way where we're not saying it with our mouths, but we're saying it with our lives that we don't want to adhere or submit to a God, right? For example, just talking about this moral doubt, Christian men, young men who use pornography, I just looked at at a study, are reported to have lower levels of religious engagement, so less likely to go to church, less likely to to read their Bible, less likely to pray. They have lower self-worth, they have lower identity in regards to dating, and they have higher levels of depression, right? And so if we have a moral failure, it's like, that could be anything, it could be with any sin pattern, right? It may drive us to doubt because God may feel afar off because sin separates us from God, right? And so if this is you, first, we need to confess that to God. He's faithful and just. Second, we need to confess that to others so that we might be healed, James 5:16. It might be embarrassing, but once that sin is out in the open, it doesn't have that dominating, controlling effect over our lives anymore, right? And so let's see how Habakkuk handled his doubts, his questions, and his complaints. So let's look at verse 1 here in chapter 2. It says, I will stand, Habakkuk's uh, speaking here, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. This is a fantastic posture that Habakkuk has toward God. First, he's willing to watch, to wait, to be patient, to be persistent. Praying multiple times doesn't mean you lack faith. It means that you are a good prayer. God over and over in the Bible commands us when we're praying to come more than once, to pray with persistence. Sometimes, right, and this is harmful too, we don't expect God to answer. But Habakkuk did. He waited on the watchtower, on the rampart, until God would respond. He was willing to wait, willing to trust God to respond. Maybe instead of doubting God's response, maybe we don't say, oh, well, God's not going to answer. We demand God's response. (laughs) Like, 
like God owes us something. God doesn't owe us anything, right? That's a bad posture. We're not his boss. He doesn't answer to us. We answer to him. And so Habakkuk had a correct posture of the heart in the way that he had humility, right? He expected, look at this, the second half of this verse, and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. You see this humility? He expected God to correct his thinking, not the other way around. Listen, this is a problem with uh, deconstruction and this, uh, this movement of people abandoning the faith. We place more faith in our doubts than we place in God. Does that make sense? We need to doubt our doubts more than we doubt God. That's a lot of doubt, but does that make sense? Who are we going to place more faith in? The God of the universe who spoke everything into existence, who's perfectly good and wise and loving, sent his own son to die for us? Or are we going to place our faith in our little doubt? Right? And that's the problem. We're, we're placing more faith in the doubt than the God of the universe, who's all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful, right? Or how, how about this? How many times have we thought or heard, well, if I was God, I would do it this way. I know if I've thought that before, right? If I was God, I would have brought judgment on Judah a different way. Or if I was God, whatever, right? How prideful is that? We're setting ourselves above God. We think we know more than God. How sad is that? But Habakkuk doesn't do that. He says, I will answer. My thinking's wrong. And when God responds, I'll correct my thinking. Right? It's not God who's wrong. It's probably me. Right? So God promises in the passage of Habakkuk, hey, I'm going to punish them. I see their sin. I'm not going to overlook it. To the, to the Chaldeans. Right? They will be plundered just like they uh, plunder all these other nations. Uh, for us in this process of problem, pray, uh, promise, Problem, promise, praise, excuse me. We need to find a promise that will help us with our problem. Are we frustrated with injustice that we see in the world? Guess what? We know that God will make all things right. He will do it. Are we tired? Christian, you're going to enter eternal rest. We have to cling to that promise. Does someone in your life need healing? Guess what? God will give you, or them, if they're in Christ, a perfect body that never tires, hungers, thirsts, or hurts again. So we need to find that promise to the problem and stand on it, right? Let's, let's read this one verse uh, here, I think. Uh, let's see. Uh, verse 4. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. So in opposition to the proud Chaldeans, right, God says that the just shall live by faith. Right? Pride looks inward to self, but faith looks outward to God. Okay, we're going to go, here's some woes that God's saying um, eventually people are going to be singing over the Chaldeans once they conquer them. So the first thing from 9 to 11, I don't know if I have time to read it all, but basically the summary is woe to the greedy. And in, in this verse, I think this is kind of interesting, it says that you sin against your own soul when you're greedy. The, the man who's greedy sins against his own soul. There's a passage I was reading through in 1 Samuel where David asked this favor. Okay, I'll get to the point at the end. So if you don't know the story, that's okay. I'll explain it real fast. David asked this favor from Nabal because his men were hungry. David's men were hungry. And David in the past had done a favor for Nabal's servants. And so Nabal refuses to give David anything. But overnight, Nabal's wife overheard the conversation that he had with David and snuck some supplies to David's camp, right? Some wine and some food. 
And so when uh, Nabal, he was drunk that night with a feast, when he woke up and heard of the news, the next day it says that his heart died within him and became like a stone. Literally says that word for word in the Bible, in 1 Samuel. Greediness makes us hard like a stone. So woe to the greedy. That's the first one. Uh, 12 through 14 says woe to the violent or the oppressors. Uh, God's going to strike them down. He's going to deal with them. Uh, God didn't like it. says that the cities were built on the backs of slaves. And so God was going to repay them for that. In 15 through 17, it's talking about woe to the drunk and those who promote drunkenness. Uh, and especially in an effort to promote lewdness or sensuality. But I think it's interesting not just those who are drunk, but those, it says, who press the, the lips of the bottle to someone else's lips. Whoever enables sin is also responsible for part of that sin as well. So may we not just partake in sin, may we not enable others to be sinning as well, right? It says that in Romans 1. Uh, verse 18 through 20 uh, says, Woe to the idolater. And I think it's so interesting. I'm going to read it real quick. What profit is the image that its maker should carve it? The molded image, a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols. Woe to him who says to wood, awake to silent stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. I think it's so interesting. Maybe we are like, wow, these Chaldeans are so dumb. Maybe. They're, they're, they're worshiping these idols that can't speak, they can't talk. They're little, they carve them themselves, and then they worship them. So strange, right? And they can't talk, they can't respond, but we do that all the time, right? Think about money. <laughs> money can't respond to us, talk to us, but we worship that in the way that maybe we set up our lives or deep down in our hearts or go down the, go down the list, right, of different idols that we have. They can't save us, they can't speak, excuse me, speak to us. Right? And yet we still worship those things. But I think this is so interesting. Isn't this so beautiful? But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Look at this contrast. I think this is so cool. The, in contrast, look, the Babylonians speak all day to their idols, and the idols don't say one word. We could never open our mouths. If we chose not to open them, our mouths for the rest of our lives, we could sit silent before the Lord and listen to him speak every day. Isn't that so cool? I think it's so beautiful. The Chaldeans are speaking, speaking, speaking. No response. We don't even have to say a word, and we get a response. Isn't that so awesome? Because we serve a God who's alive, who's active, who's real. Stop placing our faith in idols that can't save us, that can't even respond to us. Idols that we carve, and then we worship. So strange, right? But we do that in our lives as well, in our hearts. And so I think that's a beautiful contrast. And let's go to the third chapter. I think we're doing pretty good, huh? I'm proud of myself from the pacing. All right. So this is chapter 3. So God's done talking in this book. Habakkuk's going to sing uh, this song of praise here at the end. At the beginning of this chapter, he's going to pray. And so here in the beginning of, uh, of the chapter, Habakkuk is praying, is begging God for revival. I think it's interesting. Oh, Lord, I have heard your speech, and I was afraid. Oh, Lord, uh, revive your work in the midst of the years. Look at this. This revival, it's a work of God's hand, not of Habakkuk's own doing. Right? We need a move of God's spirit if we want to see revival. I think it's also interesting. This is a personal prayer. Right? I have uh, heard your speech, right? Uh, 
and it's between him and the Lord. It's very personal. I think that's, that's a great uh, insight into the way that we should pray about revival because oftentimes, myself included, Christians complain. Oh man, there's so much complacency in the church. There's pride, there's gossip, there's laziness, whatever, etc., etc. without realizing we are the church, right? And we can't fully control another person's heart or a person's life, but we can control, you know, in some aspect, our own, right? What we're thinking about, what we're doing. And we can walk in repentance first. We can study God's word. We can go to the prayer closet and bow before the Lord in prayer. And so revival starts when we walk in repentance before the Lord. Does that make sense? Not waiting for someone else to do it. Oh, they should really repent. They should really get it going. They are pretty cold spiritually. Why don't we just get, uh, you know, warm spiritually, right? So think about it. The three C's I, I try to think about in a day. Checking my conduct. Do I walk in a way that glorifies God? And do I walk with God privately as I should when no one else is seeing? <laughs> that's, that's tough. Second, our conversations. Are they beneficial I, I love this. This is beautiful. In Ephesians, we just read, are they beneficial to the hearer? That's so, that's so sweet. Talking about graceful words. Are they meaningful? Do they have substance? Or are they just vain? Like, do we never talk about anything of substance? Or maybe just gross, you know, conversation, gross speech. And then thirdly, our communion. Are we living in and abiding with Jesus? Right? Taking a look at our own lives. Not trying to judge other people's walks. Right? But looking at ourselves. Right? And as we walk in repentance, and as we walk in dependency, hopefully others see, you know, this model and that they would want to follow it as well, right? I think it's interesting. Uh, he says here, um, in the midst, or, or excuse me, O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. Look, Habakkuk wanted, um, in, in the next part, in the midst of the years to make it known. Sorry, that's the verse I was looking for, the part I was looking for. Habakkuk wanted this move of God's spirit, this revival, to be so evident that it was from God that people couldn't doubt, right? It wasn't man-made. It wasn't manipulating emotions. It wasn't, you know, a week-long thing. It was a work of God's spirit. May we pray for revival in that way, that it be long-lasting, that it be so miraculous and so grand and so great, people would look at it and say, that's from God, right? That's not from uh, man's whatever, strategies or manipulation, that's from God. The transformed lives, the testimonies, may they see God in it, not us, right? Then he asks, that last part of verse 2, in wrath remember mercy. I think this is kind of interesting. Habakkuk prayed knowing that his country did not deserve revival. <laughs> so God, right, please have mercy on our church, on our city, on our nation, on our world. We don't deserve it, but please send that undeserved revival once again. We know that that's on his heart, right? And so 3 through 15, Habakkuk uh, goes from prayers of revival. Then he goes to praising God that makes that revival possible. And it's a great stanza. You can read it. It's pretty long, so I'm not going to read it. But it's a great stanza of God's awesome power and God's majesty. But I wanted to encourage uh, you guys tonight, maybe if you're struggling with a doubt or a deep question, to, to wait honestly for God's response, to be open to his word, to be persistent in your efforts. But sometimes, listen up to this, sometimes God says to us like he says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, right, to get you through. Or maybe, like Job, we don't get the answer to the suffering that we were looking for. Sometimes that happens. 
Sometimes God's just asking us to trust him. He doesn't owe us a reason. And so I want to encourage if that's you, right, don't give up. Keep persisting. Keep going to the watchtower. Keep listening. But when you hear that response and God says, hey, my grace is sufficient for you to get you to the other side. Or I don't have an answer, but just trust me right now. You don't have to know why, right, to get you through. I want you guys to know this if maybe you come to that place or you're in that season or you get that response and you're discouraged. Ready? God reveals himself in the Old Testament, I love this, as the God that sees. So one, he sees you. Two, God hears you. He can hear the cry of a servant. God knows. I love this one. Because many people can see what you're going through or hear of your story, but not understand what you're going through. But that's not true of God. Listen, God is there. He understands. And listen to this. You don't have to convince God of your pain or your hurt or your doubt. He already knows. Isn't that good? You don't have to convince him. And then fourth, listen to this. I love this so much. Habakkuk, he was crying out. He was doing all this stuff. He had this burden that's fantastic. He had this response of praise. But listen to what God does. God acts. Look here in verse 13 of chapter uh, 3. For you went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation with your anointed. Maybe many people here, sometimes I've wondered before, you know, how could God be so aware of everything that's going on? And maybe he lets these things go unpunished, or he sees everything going on, and he doesn't deliver his people from the struggling. God, I'm struggling. Maybe you're thinking, why won't you deliver me? Look at this. Look to the cross, right? God didn't just send. He could have sent another, I guess, Moses maybe to deliver. No, he didn't do that. He didn't send another servant. Guess what he did? He took on flesh. He stepped down and experienced the pain, the injustice, the suffering. Why? So he could deliver his people. He did something about it. He did. We can look back to the cross. And in his return, he's going to do something. And he's going to make everything right. And so if that's you, I want you guys to know that God sees you. He hears you. He knows your situation. You don't have to convince him that you're hurting or that you're struggling or that you're doubting. He knows. And he has acted and he will act. And so in closing, Habakkuk, he writes this beautiful poem here from 17 through 19. Let's read uh, uh, 17 through 18 here. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor uh, fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the oil, or excuse me, of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, Though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Right? Sometimes we think, you know, if God is so good, how can he let me struggle? But Habakkuk here got it right. He said, if I struggled, guess what? I deserve it. I live in a sinful, fallen world, so I'm going to still praise God. My circumstances don't diminish God's greatness right? And then here in 19, Habakkuk comes to a place where his strength and his joy was in God, not vines, not fig trees, not fields, not flock. We need to be rooted and grounded in God's love and judge our circumstances by his love. We need to judge our circumstances by God's love for us rather than judging God's love for us by our circumstances, I know that's a lot of words. I'm going to try to unfold it here a little bit. Think about this. Immature Christians, when we're kind of immature in our faith, we think that sometimes God doesn't love us when life gets tough, right? When something's hard, 
Maybe we think God doesn't uh, really love us. But mature Christians know that God loves them despite whatever they're going through. Right? And so, you know, as we walk through our doubts, complaints, questions, I, I love this in the, in the last verse here. The Lord uh, God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. And he will make me walk on my high hills. I love this verse so much. Right? As we walk through these doubts, complaints, questions, whatever it is, God causes us not just to plod through life, but to, jan- to dance, excuse me, to jump. Right? This is a life of faith and trust that's been cultivated by hard things. Right? This is what I wanted to get at. When something bad happens, say I got sick, right? the right response is, oh man, I live in a fall- sinful, fallen world. I got sick. But guess what? I know God loves me so much. And I know he's going to heal me one day if he doesn't do it right now, right? But sometimes when we're immature in the faith, we think, oh, I got sick, right? God doesn't love me. Habakkuk knew, hey, I'm living in a sinful, fallen world. I'm not going to stop singing God's praises. I deserve what's coming to me. I'm going to sing God's praises. Does that make sense? But here, I think it's so interesting, right? Sometimes God teaches us things or certain lessons that he can't teach us when things are going easy. Right? When everything's going good, when there's uh, smooth, when it's smooth sailing, right? Sometimes God has to teach us through tough situations. But guess what? I don't know why all the time. I think if, if, if people try to explain away all suffering and give you a reason for, you know, really all suffering, I think part of it is mysterious, right? Maybe we don't know. God knows. But listen, I do know God's character. And I do know that he's good. And he has our best intentions in mind. And so I know when we're going through a tough situation... It's for our good, it's for our growth, and it's for God's glory, right? And so let's walk through this process together as we identify. Hopefully, I don't know where we're at, but uh, maybe we could take some time to reflect if we don't think we're, uh, we're somewhere in this process, right? Of identifying maybe a problem that we have in our heart, a doubt that we have. Then finding a great promise to that problem, and then turning to praise. I, I think it's so cool. This year, um, you know, in Bible class, we go through, in one class, we go through the whole Bible in a year. That's tough. This is, it's basically like tonight, man. That's what I, I got to do. Like, a whole book in 30 minutes. <laughs> That's kind of what I got to do. But we had, I had ninth graders do this. It was so beautiful to see the responses. Something that the first verse that they were burdened for, they had this great burden, right, that's weighing on their heart or on their mind. Why would this happen to my family? Why would this happen? Right? But then they would find a promise that could relate to that and answer to that and speak to that. And then they would show, uh, you know, when they found that promise, how did that uh, cause them to react in their thinking? What happened to their heart when they found that promise and when they clung to it? And it was so cool to see ninth graders, little ninth graders, whatever, 14 years old, right, uh, find those solutions maybe, right, come to a kind of end of that doubt. And so I pray for us. Maybe you do something like that, right? If you're working through the intellectual, emotional, maybe moral doubts, that you uh, partake in some of those steps. But listen, I I pray for all of us, wherever we're at on that journey, right, that we go from, like Habakkuk, despair to hope, that we would go from doubt to praise, that we would go from uncertainty to confidence, that maybe we would go from uh, confusion to somewhat of clarity. Even if that clarity is saying, my grace is sufficient for you, or trust me, I know what I'm doing, right? And so that's my prayer for all of us, right? Knowing that God is good and God is for us. So that's, I try to pace it the best I could, 8.15. Hopefully that's not too late. So I, I, I would just ask if you guys would pray with me real quick and then 
uh, then we'll leave for tonight. So Lord, we just thank you for your word. And God, I thank you for this book, God, that, that speaks to the issue of doubt. And Lord, we, we, I, I love to see uh, this process of Habakkuk as, as he's honest uh, before you, as, he's, as he knows that you can handle uh, the big questions. And then as he uh, sits there on the rampart, on the watchtower, waiting for your response, knowing that he, his uh, thinking needed to be correcting, not your thinking, God. May we emulate that. Being persistent in prayer, being patient, and being humble. God, I pray, Lord, maybe wherever we're at on this, I pray that, um, Lord, you would help us to turn, Lord, maybe that mourning uh, into joy, right, or to dancing, Lord, that, that, that confusion or uncertainty into clarity, God. Lord, we thank you that you're so great and you're so good. I pray if we're, if we're doubting your character, God, that we would look to your, to your faithfulness, excuse me, God, through generations past, all the way throughout the Bible, through the, the church fathers, to our stories here today, how you've been faithful to us. And as we uh, reflect upon that, God, may we see that you are good. May we trust in you. May we go deeper in our relationship with you. May our doubts not cause us to turn farther away from you, but to turn into you like Habakkuk. And so, Lord, um, Lord, it's a, it's a tough subject. It's, it's hard. Sometimes it takes years to kind of walk through it. Maybe we don't get our answer until we see you. But God, I pray that we would trust in your character. We trust in your goodness. Lord, we'd, we'd choose to, to praise, even when uh, the life circumstances aren't good, when everything's not blossoming, when there isn't fruit, when there isn't livestock, may we still say, I'm going to praise the Lord for my salvation. He gives me strength. Not what I have, not what I'm going through, not my situation. My strength is in God and God alone. Lord, I pray that we draw our spiritual vitality and strength from you. I pray tonight if we're, if we're struggling, if we're wrestling like the name Habakkuk means with something, Lord, that we would take it before you honestly. We'd think about it. We'd set some time to think about it, to pray through it to talk to others about it, to read good resources. God, we don't want to uh, stay in this place of chapter one. We want to move on to chapter two, hear your promises, and then chapter three, praise you for what you're going to do or for what you've already done. So thank you for your word being preached tonight. Lord, thank you for um, all these people who faithfully uh, sit and listen uh, to your word. I pray that we wouldn't just be hearers, but we would be um, doers, Lord. I pray that maybe if we're not struggling with doubt, maybe we could pass on this wisdom to someone else, Lord. We know that your word doesn't return void. Um, so, uh, Lord, thank you for being here in this room. Thank you for teaching us tonight. We pray for the rest of our week that you'd be glorified, you'd be exalted in our lives, in our workplaces, uh, Lord, in our homes, wherever we're going. May we abide with you, and may we make your name known to the nations. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.